0: Welcome to the Divorce Podcast, where we explore all aspects of ending relationships, separation and parenting apart. If your marriage or partnership has ended, or you have friends and family who are separating, this podcast is for you. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor, divorce specialist and co-founder of Amicable, the online legal service for separating couples. In each episode, we look at relationships and separation from different angles, including the emotional, legal and social. I'm joined by experts and special guests who share their own unique stories, experience and tips with the goal of helping people end relationships in a kinder and better way. In this episode, I was joined by Louise Oliver, a certified financial planner and chartered wealth manager to discuss financial planning and divorce during a cost of living crisis. Louise has worked in the financial services sector for over 30 years. Throughout her career, she's regularly featured as a financial expert in the media, including across the BBC, Moneybox and local radio. We began this episode by discussing the value a financial planner can bring to discussions during divorce and separation. Louise explained the importance of being pragmatic and willing to tweak your agreements as you move through the process. We looked at the impact fluctuating asset valuations, especially during a cost of living crisis, as well as making sensible investments that reflect your attitude to risk. Louise made the point that different types of asset react differently to the varying market conditions and the importance of having a mix of different assets when you separate finances after divorce. We also explored options around the family home and maintenance payment, as well as pensions. If you loved this episode, then please subscribe and rate us on your preferred listening platform. Welcome, Louise. It's lovely to have you again.
1: It's lovely to be here, Kate, and thank you for inviting me. Well, Louise, you're one of our regular guests now, I would say, and
0: we've done a podcast before on finances and divorce. And today we're going to have a deep dive into how financial planning can help when you're divorcing or separating, particularly during this cost of living crisis. Now, we know it's a really tough time for people. And so I'm really interested to hear on how things are different when there's a cost of living crisis and some of the typical issues that we see. And I'm really keen to get some advice and tips so that people navigating divorce and separation at this particularly difficult time can benefit from your advice and wisdom. So let's get started. Just give us a quick overview. I did mention we've done one of these before and people are very welcome to go back and listen. But for those who are coming to this for the first time, just briefly outline what is a financial planner, Louise? What do you do? How do you help people?
1: Yes, Kay. Briefly, so people do tend to come to a financial planner when they're going through a change in their lives. Now, some firms do say they're financial planners, but actually they don't do a lot of planning. What planning is, is looking at where you are now with your finances and your life and where you'd like to be. So obviously this is particularly relevant when you're going through a divorce because there's a lot of fear and uncertainty. So what a financial planner can do is work with an individual or a couple to really deep dive and gain a handle on the individual components that make up their wealth. And not only that, to forecast forwards to see what it might look like when there's a split and how they can cope and what their individual needs are. So it's very important when people are going through change, Kate. Right. Okay. so
0: Louise, that's interesting because typically when you're using a service like Amicable or when you're going through mediation, you're agreeing together, aren't you? What a good financial kind of settlement might look like when you're divorcing. So it sounds to me like a financial planner helps then to see whether or not the agreement you've come to actually works in reality. Is that fair enough? Have I got that right?
1: It, it is fair, Kate. And also there are factors to take into consideration that you may not think about. I mean, one of the main factors at the minute is inflation. So your cost of living now is going to be very different in 12 months' time and in five years. So factoring that in is really, really important. The other thing that people do tend to, you know, not focus on particularly is what can take the train off the tracks so you might come to an agreement an amicable agreement the numbers look workable but say for example you're receiving a maintenance payment a child maintenance or a spousal maintenance and the person paying that is no longer able to work or worse they pass away so it's looking at not only now but the stability and stress testing your financial situation now and into the future. So a good financial planner will be able to work with you as an individual, or as I say, we do work with couples, to really look at that and see whether it's workable for both of you. All right. So there's a couple of really interesting
0: points in there. And you mentioned the I word, inflation. Now, we know that that's running at double digits at the moment. And that is having a huge impact on people as they're separating and divorcing. And you also mentioned maintenance payments, whether they're child maintenance or whether they're spousal maintenance. And inflation and child maintenance payments, that's one of the big issues that we see right now at the moment. So let's just unpick that a little bit. So it seems to me that there is an issue with, because you can, can't you? You can link your spousal and children payments to inflation. Now, what happens then if inflation is running at double digits, but you're the paying person hasn't had pay rise that matches that? All of a sudden, you've got a big hike in payments and no real
1: ability to pay. What happens in that scenario, Louise? Okay, it's really difficult. And um, at the minute, we're seeing a lot of this. So people aren't getting those pay rises, which is a good thing, we're told for inflation, you know, very inflationary to have pay rises. But the cost of living's ridiculous. Inflation is looking like it might come down, but not until sort of maybe the third quarter of 2023. So it's a real challenge. I think with um, maintenance payments, it's being sensible as to how you do link those. You can't possibly link maintenance payments to this current 10.7% inflation that we're seeing at the minute because it's just not sustainable. So when we're forecasting forwards, we look at the long term average, which is nearer to three, three and a half percent which is more sensible. So it's looking at it in the round and not throwing forward figures that are really unsustainable for many individuals and couples at the minute. I think with regards to negotiating ongoing maintenance, it's important to look at needs and people really are looking at how they can save costs at the minute sensibly. Everybody is, we all are, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, really critiquing your bank statements cancelling direct debits that perhaps you you don't need or didn't know you were paying, all sorts of strategies to help minimise that cost of living wherever you can. But it's communication that's the key. So if you are finding some pinch points and you're in receipt of a maintenance payment or you're paying, I think that communication, talk about it, how can you deal with it? Sometimes the wider family can help, Kate. It's interesting, you know, we're finding that parents of grandparents are getting involved because they care what happens to their grandchildren. You know, it's it's looking at the bigger picture. How can you deal with this? Thinking out of the box. So we do get involved in those more wider family discussions to help couples navigate through this too. I think that's the point,
0: isn't it, Louise? It's, just because your maintenance agreement may have an inflation clause in there doesn't mean you should go off demanding a 10% increase at this point in time. If you know that your partner hasn't had a pay rise or anything like that, you have to, as you said, not just stick to the letter of what's been agreed or what's in your agreement, but to actually be sensible about it and have that dialogue and have that discussion. Because I sometimes think people think that just because it's written down, it has to happen. And you know the whole purpose often we say, don't we, of having a legally binding agreement is that you know there's it's all documented, and there's no confusion, but ultimately you're still trying to problem solve, and a court's not going to order somebody to pay an inflation linked maintenance payment if they have no ability to pay it are they They're not going to make those kinds of orders, they're not going to enforce something that is going to leave the other person unable to live. So you do still have to be flexible, even if you've got your bit of paper that's all signed and sealed by the court. There's still the need to have that discussion and to look at things sensibly rather than trying to enforce or just stick to the letter of the agreement. And so I think what you said about communication is super important.
1: So key. It's so key. And of course, it can be expensive if you're looking at renewing or revising or altering a maintenance payment and going back to the courts or appointing a lawyer or whatever. The cost of that will invariably outweigh the actual potential results. And it could go the other way. Mm. You know, often it's Mm. it's just worth having that. So we always say in financial planning, it has to be reasoned and reasonable. And if you can tick those two boxes, usually it's a sensible outcome for both sides. But there's no doubt about it. It's, it's difficult, especially at the minute, Kate, where we're finding people running businesses are struggling in some sectors. We've got hospitality, retail, leisure. And if and if your maintenance payment is reliant on that drive from a business, there has to be that working together just to get through this difficult period that we find ourselves in, pulled together as a, as a family, if you possibly can. I mean, we've
0: seen a lot of fluctuating asset valuations, haven't we, in the last few months? I mean, we've gone from sort of the summer through to, you know, the September and October and the mini budget and then the redoing of the mini budget. And it just feels like there's it's been quite hard to tie anything down. We know that asset values can fluctuate anyway when you're going through a divorce and separation, but it feels like it's been particularly difficult for people riding that roller coaster in the last few months. What sort of advice would you give people who are trying to come to a settlement who may have done a financial disclosure and had their assets valued and then things may have completely changed? What, What sort of advice do you give people in that scenario?
1: Yeah, it's been a bit like the Wild West, hasn't it, Kate? Over the last sort of uh, few months, and um, house prices—it's difficult to navigate those that they are what they are, and it's supply and demand. With portfolios like pensions, ISAs, investment accounts, what we're encouraging people to do is to make sure that they're risk appropriate. What I mean by that, often it takes a while to negotiate a divorce settlement. I mean, it can be years. If you work amicably, you could do that in a shorter period of time, of course. But we're finding that people really don't understand where their money is invested. And they may have a high-risk portfolio, which will be completely inappropriate. And if you're going through a divorce and you're looking at your numbers, it's important to make sure that it's appropriately invested because if you're more of a cautious investor or you might describe yourself as medium risk and you're on a high-risk portfolio and it's all over the place, you might want to just tweak it whilst you're going through that process. Speak to your financial advisor if you haven't had a review. Appoint someone to review it if you can and make sure that you know, you're know you in a sensible place so that when we do have these economic downturns and the volatility in the markets you're not along for that crazy ride you need to have sensible investments throughout this period that really reflect your attitude to risk so that would be my you know steer Do you think there's something in that then, louise in terms of if
0: you know that you're about to go through a divorce should you be looking at your portfolio at that point and putting it into changing it around so that your risk is stabilized so that you don't get these big spikes and troughs during the divorce itself when you're trying to get you know an average value for your assets.
1: I don't think you should change your attitude to risk just because you're going through a settlement but I think it needs to be relevant to where you are in your life. Sometimes Mm -hmm. people set these things up in their sort of I don't know maybe their 30s and then they're in their 40s and 50s, and they haven't reviewed it. That's the thing, just review it, because it could be the wrong decision if you go from adventurous to cautious and the the market shoot the lights out and you regret Mm -hmm. changing it. It just has to Mm -hmm. be appropriate to how you're feeling and also what you're trying to achieve. So if you put together a cash flow forecast or a financial plan, if you know that you need to achieve a certain percentage every year, Growth, maybe four or 5%, something sensible, and you're invested to shoot the lights out, you might not need to do that. So it's just sensibly looking at it. So not wildly changing your outlook, but understand where you're invested, because this is what's happened lately. People are shocked to see that their pensions and their investment portfolios have fallen so much because they're probably in the wrong risk mandate for them. It's uncomfortable for them. So that would be my recommendation. So it's about just trying to match your level of risk to the
0: age and stage you are in life. And sometimes it takes a divorce or something, like you say, a big change, doesn't it? To actually make you look at your finances and make you think about how things are invested and whether it's appropriate for where you are. So I get that those things coming together can be quite a big upheaval, can't they? Are there any other... Big asset classes. You mentioned pensions. Uh, it's really tricky, isn't it? Because when you go through a divorce and you write off to the pension company, and they give you a what's called a CETV, a cash equivalent transfer value for your pension, by the time you actually come to implement any share of the pension, that can be several months—you know, six months, nine months, even a year down the line from when you first requested that valuation and the figures can be quite different can't they and this doesn't feel like there's much we can do about
1: that it's just
0: one of the things that people should be aware of I guess.
1: Well especially this year because the way that pension companies secure pension funds final salaries is to buy assets that are ordinarily cautious so they might buy government gilts and if you've caught the news of late those are the asset classes that have reacted very strangely or unusually especially after the mini budget. So the value of those gilts, because the yields went up, and I don't want to go into too much detail because it can be quite complicated, but basically those cautious assets reacted more like shares. They fell. And this is why we had this panic in the pension companies as to whether they can meet their liabilities. Why does this affect CETVs, cash equivalent transfer values? Because in order to secure future benefits, pension companies would need more money for that benefit if the value is less. So therefore, you would see the CETV potentially be higher for a period of time. So the actual value is driven by these assets that it would have to buy to secure the future income. So if you've gone through that period and it's been a while since you've had your CETV, it might be a good idea to get an up-to-date value. Although the only caveat is it can take months. I mean, you know this, Kate, yeah. sometimes you're waiting yeah. ages. So you might just want to get on with your divorce. I so suppose it depends what proportion of the assets the pension is in respect of the split. If it's large, if the answer is it's large then it might be worth just revising it. And of course, it could work both ways, depending on, you know, you would win or lose, depending. So yeah, it's it's worth keeping an eye on. But that's good advice, isn't it? If the pension
0: is a big part of your settlement, and you think there has been a significant change in the value of the pension, then it is worth pressing the pause button, even as you say, if it takes perhaps adds several months to the the process, because if it's going to make such a big difference, then it's important to get an accurate and up-to-date CETV.
1: As you would with a property value. If the market's shifted a lot, perhaps you would have revisit that.
0: Exactly, well. yeah. And so it's it's okay and there is room in the process when you're doing things, particularly when you're doing things by agreement, to get up to date valuations and to to be able to navigate some of those big fluctuations that we've seen in the last few months, so I think if people are in that situation where they're feeling that the the valuations that they have and they did when they did their initial disclosure just aren't right, then it's okay to say, Look, I think from a fairness perspective, we need to reevaluate the assets and debts that we have, and your advisor, your helper whoever however you're doing your divorce should be able to take that into account totally yeah. Okay. We talked a little bit about fluctuating assets. Is there anything else that you think during a cost of living crisis, Louise, that's important to note?
1: Well, of course, we're focusing on needs. What do you actually need? And it's very difficult, isn't it, to assess what you might need in the future because you're thinking about, not now, you're thinking about what it's going to look like, your housing needs, your income needs, the wider family. And For me at the minute, it's working with individuals to make sure that they really have an understanding as to what that might be and be sensible with it as well Mm. with their needs. And with the cost of living, one of the things that is difficult is to project. So, for example, people are asking me about household energy bills. Do you forecast Mm. that forward? Is that always going to be that high? The answer is probably no. So that's quite difficult to plan, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because you're going to have a spike Mm -hmm. now and then it will level off. So it's looking at that averaging. So one of the things that we're encouraging people to do is to actually sensibly think about how that might change as as they they move forwards, because we're just in those volatile times at the minute. So it's not just fixed Mm -hmm. assets, houses, pensions, investments, those sorts of things. It's looking at individual needs moving forwards and how those assets might be able to help to accommodate what might be a short-ish term hike in prices over the next year or so. How can you do that? How can you use perhaps those capital assets to help you navigate through that as well as a combination of a maintenance payment if that's what you've agreed to? Well, are there things with maintenance payments that people commonly forget or leave
0: out, do you think? Because I, sometimes I see some very basic looking maintenance agreements where, you know, you, literally it's just the things that are your regular spend rather than some of the other things that maybe you need to think about. So, you know, replacing white goods or having your home decorated, those sorts of things seldom make it into a maintenance calculation, do they? Are there things that you see that people regularly miss
1: out? Absolutely. If you're keeping the uh, principal private residence, the family home, it's maintaining the home. Also, with regards to cars, replacing a car periodically, factoring all of that in. Things that come up with the kids birthdays, Christmas, university fees. Driving lessons, the first car, insurance, talk mm. about these things. I mean, they might not even be included in a maintenance payment, but if you have a general agreement that you're going to do half and half or one person pays for that, I think you've had the conversation rather than it being problematic down the line. Mm. Yes, we're always asking people to revisit. And as you know, because we've discussed this before, we encourage people to do essential Lifestyle, discretionary, essential, gas, electricity, council tax, everything that you have to pay. Lifestyle Mm -hmm. might be going to the gym, socializing, that sort of thing. And then discretionary, holidays, which is a spend that you don't have to incur but would like to. And then if you look at Mm -hmm. those three categories, then you've got that wriggle room, especially at the minute when we've got the cost of living crisis, you might say, actually, We'll go for the lifestyle at the minute. Discretion is nice to have. Maybe we'll come back to that in a year or so. And it just gives you that ability to tweak your lifestyle. Yeah,
0: I like that. I like the idea of those three categories. It just makes it a little bit easier to negotiate, doesn't it, when you've got those three categories labelled up. And sometimes, you know, lifestyle, particularly in a divorce, it is an important factor because the court's going to look to make sure that there isn't one of you who's got a really... Plush lifestyle versus the other one who's, you know, just at a very basic needs situation. So the court's going to want to at least feel, and fairness dictates that at least you've got a similar sort of lifestyle. One of you shouldn't be finding it super easy whilst the other one is really struggling. And that, you know, works both ways, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are all sorts of issues at the minute, Kate, aren't there? I mean, people do say that the only thing that they've got in common is the mortgage. And, you know, you've heard that time and time again. But at the minute it's yes, really I, relevant because people do have the mortgage and it ties them together in a home. Yes. And it's Yeah, amazing. I was just gonna come on to that. More yeah. paying the mortgage and the mortgage at the
0: moment, you know, because of interest rates being particularly high, it's putting a lot of pressure on a lot of people where perhaps with a low mortgage rate, there was the possibility of one person taking on the mortgage and therefore the other one being able to be bought out, that seems to be less and less now because the cost of of maintaining the mortgage is just so high.
1: Is that something you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And people do want to, if possible, especially if they've got young children, Kate, they want to hang on to the family home. It keeps that stability. But the figures sometimes just don't work. What we are seeing, though, is that people are looking at for a period of time, perhaps keeping the matrimonial home. For example, until the children are 18 or 21, and we're running the numbers on that to see if it can possibly work. Sometimes it does, and at that stage, the house has to be sold. That's Mm -hmm. it, because where you have a couple, of course, they're both wanting potentially the equity out of the house. So there needs to be an exit strategy for the person who is still on the mortgage to enable them to move on. So we're modeling to 18 and and to 21 at the minute, but you know, sometimes a clean break is the best because if you're tied to somebody, so going back to that old adage, the only thing we've got in common is the mortgage, potentially you're going to have that for another five years in common, Yeah, mortgage. Yeah. And And it does
0: really restrict you from moving on, doesn't it? If you're still paying a mortgage, it's very difficult. Most people can't then get a second mortgage. So that leaves them in private rented. And with all of the pressure on rents at the moment, that can be expensive for people, can't it?
1: Yeah. it's a real key issue, I'd say it's one of the number one issues at the minute, Kate, because people are wanting to move on, but they literally can't. I would encourage couples to speak to their mortgage companies early on to say this is what we're looking to do what can we do about it sometimes again wider family gets involved you know we're seeing guarantor situations to allow people to come off a mortgage not all companies will look at that but it's just worth exploring what are the options speak to them again it's back to the communication piece isn't it if you don't ask you just don't know you don't know there might be a route and oh, that's
0: interesting because of- lots of people are quite nervous about speaking to the mortgage company. They don't want yeah. to tell the mortgage company that they're getting divorced. They don't want that to impact whether or not they'll get a new mortgage office. Is that reasonable? Is it right for people to be a little bit cautious about speaking to the mortgage company? Or do you think it's better just to mm-hmm. get it out there and, and deal with the reality?
1: I understand the caution. I absolutely mm. do, especially if you've got a mortgage rate renewal, you're, maybe you're coming off a fixed rate and the mortgage mm. company looking at it reviewing, I do understand that. However, if you have decided to separate and it's going to come your way anyway, I don't think to put it off is particularly a good thing because it's just going to okay. hit, hit you down the line. So I do you think that communication – the mortgage companies are used to this. I mean, we know that yeah. divorce rates are high, but they should be able to advise – You know, even with some mortgages, if you've overpaid, some people have, when we had very low interest rates, remember we had low interest rates, now they're higher. (laughs) People did sometimes overpay on their mortgages. Mm -hmm. They did, they kept the payment the same. What that might mean is there could be a facility to have a mortgage holiday, potentially. Right. Mm -hmm. If you Mm -hmm. don't ask, you don't get to know, they might say, actually, you know, you've built up some, credits, therefore, or defer the interest for a while. Some Mm -hmm. companies, they have to be flexible with people. The last thing that Mm -hmm. they want is a default on their hands. So that, you know, being flexible, you would expect good mortgage lenders to at least listen. And uh, sometimes it's a weight off your chest just to have that out out in the open anyway and discussed. And with mortgages as well,
0: so you, you you're still linked, aren't you? So if you've got a mortgage, even if you're not living in the property, say one of you has moved out, you're still legally obliged to contribute to the mortgage, even if you're living elsewhere and maybe paying rent elsewhere. That that's still a conversation you need to have because your liability remains, doesn't
1: it? It does. But you're jointly liable, so you could have a situation. I mean, I came across recently where one person was paying the majority of the mortgage. And the other person oh. not very much. So you're jointly and severably liable to pay it. Who pays what is obviously up for negotiation and discussion, you know? But yeah, it is a worry, especially if one half of the of the mortgage Party is uh, is you know not happy to pay or, or misses a payment, then the other person is landed with paying it, and there's also going back to the risks of what if that person can't work or uh, or they pass away. Looking at insurance is just to make sure that you've got that covered, and when you have a joint mortgage, often there's a joint insurance policy as well, and it's worth just looking at that. Is it relevant? Should we keep it going? Probably yes. Mm-hmm. Who's going to pay it? How much does it cover? What does it cover? So it's not just the mortgage, it's the insurances that go with it. And if there are no insurances, it might be time just to have a think about introducing those with a divorce. So that's it's important, isn't it? Because if you're we have a lot of situations, don't we, where somebody
0: is staying in the property and the maintenance that they're paid is effectively what's enabling them to pay the mortgage. So in that scenario, you really have to have some insurance to ensure the maintenance, don't you? Because like you say, if the person paying that maintenance dies or becomes redundant, then you're left in default of the mortgage and you may well be the only person on the mortgage at that point. So it's super important to make sure that any agreement you come up with has that element covered.
1: Totally. And, and, you know, often it doesn't have to be really expensive. Obviously, these things are underwritten. There's a type of insurance called family income benefit you might have come across it, Kate, whereby should the person die, it pays so much a year. So rather than a lump sum, it pays so much a year to the beneficiary so that they have a replacement income rather than a lump sum. So they tend to be really cost-effective plans to look at. You're ensuring a certain benefit. So if your maintenance is £10,000 a year, just for example, then that might be the amount of cover that you require, should they pass right. away. So in
0: that case, it, it wouldn't pay off a mortgage. It would just replace the maintenance. So you'd be yep. able to continue to pay the mortgage. So you wouldn't be mortgage-free, but it, it would. it's a more cost-effective benefit is what you're saying.
1: Yes, there are ways of looking at it and keeping the costs minimal. Other options, so it's just it's just worth exploring. Of course, if you've got an existing plan, it might be one that you wish to keep. Don't cancel insurance policies in the heat of a, you know, an argument or whatever. Don't do that because it's very difficult to get them back again. Especially if you've had health issues, and those health issues could be more prevalent when you're going through a divorce. No. Things like dementia mental health Mm -hmm. issues, et cetera, we we know this. So that's the time when you don't want to be putting a new application into an insurance company when you haven't been feeling so good yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do you keep those going until you actually decide properly that they're not required because you might struggle to buy them again?
0: Absolutely.
1: So we've talked a little bit
0: about maintenance and the maintenance trap, haven't we, and how that can be impacting during a cost of living crisis and how inflation is impacting on maintenance. We've talked about housing and mortgage rates as well, and also expensive private rentals. And we've talked about the fluctuating value of assets too. Is there anything else in terms of the cost of living crisis that you think people need to be aware of when they're going through a divorce or separation? Anything you're being asked at the moment, Louise?
1: I would encourage people to speak to their credit card providers as well. That's I mean, often we're finding people that, they're, you know, especially at the minute, um, they're building up debt. Communicate mm-hmm. with each other as a couple. Don't build it up on one side and other side doesn't know. We often see that. You have to be open with it. And if you are struggling to pay or you feel that you might, again, pick up the phone, speak to your credit card provider, providers and say, this is where we're at. Often they will consider agreeing, you know, a certain amount of payment. They do listen. In my experience, they do. And it's just worth just uh, having that uh, conversation. The other thing is do a bank recce, have a look at your bank. Sometimes you might be paying direct debits you didn't know you were paying you don't use the service anymore, doubling up. I mean, I had the RAC, the AA and bank cover once. I mean, they're not all going to come rushing out to save me when I break down, are they? (laughs) No. So, you know, it's it's a case of deciding which one do you want. So for me, I've got cover with my bank, so I didn't need the other two. That's fine. Okay, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's 10, 15 pounds a month. Do you know what? It all adds up. So it sounds really basic stuff, but go through your direct debits. If they're not appropriate and you don't need them, maybe it's time to cancel them and just review, Mm. see where you can make savings. And then you're in much better position to look at your needs and what you might need moving forwards. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really good advice. I like that. Because it's so easy to do, isn't it? That doubling up
0: thing when you've got a bank account or you pay for a bank account or something and you get all of these sort of perks. And then you realize that you're actually already paying for them somewhere else as well. So that's definitely a good tip. Okay. Well, listen, Louise, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you. Thank you so much for all your help and tips. Really interesting just to get a bit of a deeper dive into how cost of living is impacting on financial settlements. Any final tips for people?
1: Well, I always say keep smiling because it actually helps. (laughs) It's going to be tricky. Divorce and separation is not easy. We're in very difficult times at the minute. We will get through it. I say this to couples divorcing. You'll get through it and there's sunshine at the other side. So I just think if you do have that positive outlook that things are going to be okay, it actually really helps.
0: Yeah. And realistically speaking, you mentioned earlier that, you know, it's going to be maybe quarter three before we see inflation coming down. Do you think things are going to sort of stabilize in the next 12 months then? Do you think we're just in a bit of a blip right now?
1: I do think that they are. When we look at inflation, it's looking backwards. It looks 12 months back. So we're looking Mm. how much has a loaf of bread increased from 12 months ago to now? So the answer is Mm. about Mm. 10.7% as the average inflation. Mm. So looking ahead one year hence, it's very unlikely that that same loaf of bread is going to increase by 10.7% ten point seven percent yet again. I don't think prices will come down, but they will level off. And of course as we see supply chains easing and hopefully some positive news eventually in the UK and Russia war. We're in it for a while, so but it, it will it will ease. It will get better.
0: Brilliant. Well on that more optimistic note Let's call it a day because we're running out of time. And where can people find out a bit more about you, Louise, if they want to get in contact, if they're going through divorce or they want some financial planning advice?
1: Okay, so they can hop onto our website, uh, Piercefield Oliver. There's quite a lot of information on there. We've got some client videos, uh, some examples of our client process as well. You can follow us on social media, you can follow me, Louise Oliver, and also Piersfield Oliver on social media. So we're quite easy to find. So we would welcome speaking to anyone. And of course, like lots of financial planners, and I know with your team as well, Kate, we're happy to speak to people initially to see if we can help. And we don't charge a fee for that initial conversation. So do contact us if you feel that a conversation would be useful.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Louise. And of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kate underscore daily. You can hear about new podcast episodes by following at divorce underscore podcast. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and visit us at thedivorcepodcast.com. Thanks so much for chatting today, Louise, and thank you too for listening.